Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for revealing yourself to us in your word. And we have come here this morning to worship you and also to hear a message from you through the Bible. And Father, I pray that now you would open our hearts, open our minds, so that we can hear through the power of your Spirit a, a true message from you in your word. Lord, give us the wisdom to understand these things and to know how to apply them to our lives. Give us the courage to, to believe and to do what you are telling us in your word. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So, uh, the Bible is mostly made up of stories, right? So, some of the, some of the Bible is direct teaching sections, and some of it is, uh, is poetry, and, and there's a bit of prophecy in there. But for the most part, the Bible is stories. And there's all kinds of stories in the Bible, uh, stories about God and His relationship with His people. And some of the stories are about how the people remain faithful to God and how he does great things for them. And some of the stories are about the failings of the people and how God deals with them when they fail. The book of Joshua is mostly a book of stories of success. It's a story that's a high point in the relationship between God and his people in which God is fulfilling his promises that he's made for his people and the people are obeying uh, God. Um, now, Joshua certainly is a story of judgment uh, in the case of the Canaanites, right? Uh, this is a story where the, the people of Canaan, the Amorites and the Jebusites and all those guys have worn out God's patience and he is bringing judgment on them. Um, but in terms of God's relationship with his chosen people, this, Joshua is a high point. One of the major themes of the book is God keeping his promises, and that idea of God keeping his promises to his people comes to a climax at the end of the book. Joshua is making a speech at the end, and he says this. He says, you know with all your heart and soul that not one of the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. So this is a time when God is doing things on behalf of his people. And it's also a high point for the people themselves Israel in Joshua's generation is, for the most part, very faithful to God. Um, they keep the covenant, and God does great things for them. Uh, another theme of the book is uh, uh, a repeated thing that happens over and over in the book of Joshua is God gives instructions to Joshua, and then the next thing we read is Joshua passing on those instructions to the people, and then the next thing we read is the people doing what Joshua told them to do. And like the, a great example of that is in uh, chapter 4, where uh, God is telling them about how to build this monument of stones from the Jordan River. So we read in Joshua chapter 4, where God tells Joshua, choose 12 men, tell them to go get two of these stones and take them out of the river. Very next thing you read is Joshua going out and choosing the 12 men and telling them to go get the stones. Then the very next thing you read is the 12 men going and getting the stones. And that's kind of the pattern in the book of Joshua, that the people are obedient to God's instructions. And as they do the things that God tells them to do, God is with them and uh, does things for them. But there are a couple of exceptions, even in the book of Joshua, 
Um, one was the story that Pastor Mike uh, talked about last week in which they uh, made a treaty with the people of Gibeon that they shouldn't have done because they uh, failed to consult God about that uh, situation. And so they, they made an alliance and a treaty with the people of Gibeon, um, which was not God's plan. Of course, God is able to use even our failures for His purposes, and so that did work out uh, well in the end, so that the people of Gibeon were, uh, were saved and eventually integrated into the people of God. But uh, the other major exception to the pattern of obedience in Joshua comes in our story today. This one takes place immediately after the story of the Battle of Jericho, right? So Jericho was an incredible victory for the people of God. God showed up in a miraculous way and told them that He would be fighting on their behalf as long as they followed His instructions. And, and in that particular battle, God gave some very specific and unusual instructions for the battle of Jericho. The first one, of course, was this instruction about marching around the city and not attacking it. They, didn't, they just marched around, and they did that for a whole week. They just marched around and marched around, and then um, on the seventh day of marching, um, they're supposed to shout, and the walls fell down. And it's not because they shouted so loud that the sonic vibrations did No, God collapsed the wall miraculously to uh, give them the victory in that battle. And that was not a typical battle strategy. This is not God saying, here's how you can conquer all the, all the cities uh, and fortifications of Canaan. This was the only time He did that. It was a demonstration on God's part that He was with His people and would be fighting for them. But, but this was a unique instruction, and it was God demonstrating to His people that if they followed His instructions, even if His instructions were a little odd, that He would uh, give them the victory. And it also served to show the Israelites how it was that they were able to conquer these other nations, because they were about to have a big string of victories over other peoples, and that kind of thing can, uh, can lead to some pride uh, and, and even arrogance, and God wanted to make sure that they did not feel that way. And so, um, so their ability to, to conquer the other nations was not because they were better warriors, it was not because they were more numerous and stronger and had better strategies. Uh, it was not even because the Israelites were more righteous and godly than the other people around them. And God wanted to make that very clear to them. So that's part of why He did this Battle of Jericho thing where they didn't even do it. It was all Him. But He also told them this stuff uh, beforehand. Uh, Moses, in his, in his final speech to the people before he passed on, um, which is the book of Deuteronomy, uh, he told them this. Uh, this is in Deuteronomy chapter 9. He said, After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, The Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going to take possession of the land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations. So at the Battle of Jericho, God showed very clearly 
that uh, what was going on here, as he collapsed the walls, God was judging the people of Canaan. The Israelites were not simply invading because they were bigger and stronger and they could take what they wanted. This was not a normal war between nations. This was God's judgment on um, these wicked people. The other very unusual instruction that God gave to uh, His people at the Battle of Jericho was that they were not supposed to take any plunder at all from the city. Because this battle was the first in the Promised Land and it was symbolic of God's involvement in this war, everything that came from Jericho was to be devoted to God. And that phrase, devoted to God... Uh, meant that there were two ways that they could devote things to God in this, in this particular context of the Battle of Jericho. One way to devote things to God was to uh, take uh, precious metals, the gold and silver and things, and they would take them and put them into the treasury of uh, the tabernacle. The other thing that they did with everything else in the city, which included the city itself, all the buildings and structures and everything of the whole city, and all the people in the city, farm animals in the city, all the contents of everything that was in the city, all was to be destroyed with fire. Everything. And this battle was not about enriching the army of Israel. It was about the judgment of God. And therefore, no plunder was to be kept. So later, in the rest of the battles of this war, um, the people did occupy the cities, uh, and they uh, were able to take the, the plunder from uh, the, the cities that they conquered. But, uh, but in this case, uh, in Jericho, everything was to be devoted to God. So in chapter 7, verse 1, immediately after the, the battle finishes... It says this, but the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zimri, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. There's some, there's some really important things in the, the way that that's stated there that we're going to come back to in, in a little bit here. But uh, first, I want to tell the rest of the story of, of what happens at this point. Um, so with that ominous foreshadow, the chapter goes on to tell the story of the next battle. So um, after this great victory at Jericho in which God demonstrated His power, showed the people that, that He was on their side, um, Israel was feeling pretty good about things. And so they sent some guys to check out the next city heading up into the mountains to, to kind of scout it out and see uh, what it was going to be like for the next one. And it was a small city called Ai, A-I, and uh, had a small name, and it was a small city. And so uh, he's, the guys went up there, took a look at it. They said, look, that place is so small, so much smaller than Jericho, not very many people there. We don't even need to send the whole army. And so that was what they did. They sent a small part of the army up to, uh, to attack that city. But when they get there, the men from Ai come out to fight them. And when they come out to fight, the Israelites are suddenly terrified. And they turn their backs and run away from the battle. 
which is always a bad battle strategy. And in this case, it resulted in 36 men being killed as they fled. The rest of them make it back to the camp and tell the people what happened. They tell Joshua and the rest, this is what happened. We went to the battle, we all got scared, we ran away, people died. And there is great mourning in the camp. How could this happen after, right after the great victory at Jericho? How can, how, how can we lose? God has just shown that He is fighting for us. How can we, just a few days later, lose our courage and flee? And they expected, now the rest of the Canaanites, who are bigger than we are, stronger than we are, better warriors than we are, have these big fortresses and everything, they're going to come and they're going to wipe us out because they're going to hear that we are cowards in battle. And so Joshua uh, chapter five, or sorry, chapter 7, verse 5, it says, At this the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there until evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And then after laying there for a few hours in front of the presence of God there at the tabernacle, Joshua voices his complaint to God. He says in verse 7, And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan and deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. To me, that sounds a lot like the complaints that people had when they're out in the wilderness and they first encountered the Canaanites and they said, God, why did you bring us out here? We could have stayed in Egypt. And now Joshua is bringing a very similar thing, which you can kind of sympathize with Joshua. I mean, he has just actually suffered a military defeat. Very surprising. God did not give them victory like Joshua thought he was going to. But God is not impressed with Joshua here. God is not impressed with his complaint or his torn clothes or his laying down on his face before the presence of God. God says in verse 10, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They have turned their backs and fled or, and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Stand up. What are you doing down on your face? I've always found that uh, response from God kind of surprising. Um, we tend to think that God wants us to, like, bow down before him and, 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 and show mourning for, uh, for things and stuff. But God is telling uh, Joshua here that, yeah, there's a time and a place for mourning, but there's also a time and a place to stand up 
and deal with sin. So acts of contrition before God, begging in prayer, that's not always what's called for. Sometimes what is called for is standing up and dealing with the sin. Getting rid of the sin is more important than falling on your face before God. And so then in the next section here, true to the pattern in Joshua, right? God tells Joshua to do something, and Joshua goes out and tells the people, this is what we're going to do, and then they do it. Um, and so, uh, so God gives Joshua this, this elaborate, uh, dramatic scene. Here's how you find out who has taken things from Jericho. And so they have this big public scene in which they, they slowly narrow down who it was. First, they bring all the tribes, and they say, okay, it was this tribe. And then they take all the clans from that tribe, and they okay, it was this clan. Now, which family from that clan? It was this family. And then they bring the individuals up, and it's Achan. And then uh, Joshua says to him, tell me what you've done. Do not hide it from me. And then in verse 20, it says, Achan replied, it is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I've done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, which was probably even more beautiful than that one that Mike wore a few weeks ago when we were talking about robes. It was a beautiful robe from Babylonia. I saw in the ro- uh, a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. No doubt Achan had a plan. It's easy to guess how he was going to do it. Some future battle, when they were allowed to take plunder, he would just say, hey, look what I found in Hebron as we conquered it. And he'd have his plunder and be able to explain where he got it. Um, So Joshua sends some guys back to Achan's tent. They find the stuff there just where Achan said it was. They bring it and they lay it out before the people and before the Lord. And it says in verse 24, Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys and sheep, his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him. And after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. And over Achan, they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Then the next chapter tells us how, now that the sin had been dealt with, they go back to I and fight there again, and God does give them the victory over that city. So that's our story. That's our story in Joshua chapter 7. And there's two significant theological issues and topics that, uh, that are taught here in this story that I want to take the rest of our time to talk about. The first one has to do with secret sins. You see, Achan's sin was done in secret. 
In the confusion of the battle, he took the things. Nobody noticed that he was taking them. And then he hid his sin in the secrecy of his own tent, where he buried it in the ground there. It's not hard for us to imagine how Achan might have justified his sin. Right? After all, who was he really hurting by taking these things? Right? I mean, the, the, the people of Jericho that had previously owned them, they were gone. Um, so he wasn't, uh, wasn't robbing from them. Um, the, the, the robe was just supposed to be burned up. Uh, the, the gold and silver, it was supposed to go into the treasury, but come on, there was a whole city's worth of gold and silver going into the treasury. Nobody would miss this, this bit of gold and silver that, uh, that Achan was going to take. So this was a sin that nobody else knew about, didn't do any harm to another person, not a big deal, right? Well, we see in the story that this seemingly small and secret sin was treated like a very big deal. Why was it such a big deal? I think part of the reason why this was treated as such a big deal was the historical moment in which this happened, right? Uh, the great battle of Jericho where God had done this tremendous miracle and, and, and it was this first battle coming into the promised land that God had been promising for all these hundreds of years and finally was fulfilling His promise. That was part of the reason why it was a big deal. But really, is this such a great sin that it warranted that God caused Israel to lose a battle in which 36 men died and then bring the death penalty for Achan, and not just for him, but for his whole extended family. Even his sheep and goats died. And, you know, to, to me, <laughs> to be honest... This sin doesn't seem to rise to the level of dozens of people dying for it. But here's the thing. I am not the one who gets to decide what's a big sin and what's a small sin. And I'm not the one who gets to decide what the proper response to sin is. And neither are you. See, this is a real test of faith. This is a test of our trust in God. When God judges sin differently than you or I would judge it, how do we respond? Do we question God? Because it's pretty tempting to put ourselves in the place of the ultimate judge who will decide whether God did the right thing or not. Because really, to do otherwise is to deny our own sense of right and wrong. A lot of times we have pretty strong feelings about, this is not right. This is the thing that, this is what should be done in this case, and we, we feel that way. But when our sense conflicts with God... 
what do we do? One way to dodge it is to, to just judge the Bible itself rather than judging God, right? We can say, well, God got it right, but the Bible is wrong. See, the Bible makes it look like uh, God wanted this, but in reality, the, the people of Israel just got carried away. Joshua and those guys uh, went too far, and, uh, and it wasn't God's fault. It's just that the Bible didn't get it right here. And that does seem better than saying God got it wrong. But again, that makes us, that makes me the ultimate standard of what is right and wrong, and I will judge the Bible and tell it whether the Bible got it right or not. And that is a bad idea. If we do that, the Bible can never correct any of our moral flaws, because anytime we disagree, we just reject it. We're essentially saying that our own judgment is better than God's revelation in His Word. And sometimes we don't realize that's what we're doing, right? We don't think it through quite that way. We just say, I'm uncomfortable with that, and I don't think that that's right. But that's what we're doing. We're putting ourselves as the ultimate judge. We have a sense of right and wrong and just and unjust, and it doesn't always match up with what God teaches us in His Word. So what should we do when that happens? We should allow God to correct our own flawed moral compass. Because my inner sense of justice is not perfect. Our own sense of right and wrong is influenced by our culture, by our family background, by our education, by our own sinful desires. The Bible tells us in the book of Proverbs, there is a way that seems right to a man but its end is the way to death. What seems good and right to us is not always what is good and right. Our own judgment is not a reliable guide. We need a God who will tell us what is right and wrong. And this is one of the places where being a Christian calls for real humility. We must submit to God and His teaching, even when it doesn't match up with what seems good and right to us. And here in the story of Achan, we have two elements that don't seem right to my own sense of, of justice. The first thing that just seems off to my own inner sense is that God sees this sin that Achan committed as a really big deal. Dozens of people die because of Achan's sin. But is it really that big of a sin? It's a secret sin, takes place in hiding, nobody else even knows about it, no one is really getting hurt by it. But God sees it, and He treats it as a very big deal. And who gets to decide the magnitude of a sin? Me or God? Now, I want to take a moment here. What do you think is a modern parallel situation to this? 
What sin do we often commit in secret that we think, not a big deal, we justify it to ourselves, nobody even knows about it, we're not hurting anybody, it's just a secret sin with no victim. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of modern parallels in people's lives, I'm sure there's a lot of different things, but, but surely pornography is a big one, right? The statistics tell us that this sin is very widespread, even among Christians. And I think that many people seek to minimize it. Look, it's a secret thing. Nobody even knows about it. It's, uh, it's not hurting anybody. But what did Jesus say in his Sermon on the Mount? He said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, whether we think so or not, God considers this kind of thing a big deal. It's not a small secret sin of little consequence. So, so here's what I'm going to recommend to everybody today. I have a practical step that I, I, I feel like we should all take, and that is get a porn blocking thing on your phone, right? So I have Covenant Eyes on my phone, um, which I feel like that's the, the best one that, uh, that's out there that uh, works with uh, accountability with someone else who gets a report of what you're, what you're doing on there, and it uh, protects you from that. Because, you know, having, having something like that, uh, you know, why do you want to carry around a, a, a tremendous library of pornography in your pocket all the time? Why not just protect yourself from that temptation, which we know so many people fall into, by, uh, by having a bit of, uh, of a barrier there? It's not a perfect protection, but it's better than nothing. And... Uh, and if you think you don't need it because, you know, it hasn't been a problem for you, do you remember last month's memory verse? Part of that verse was, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. It's just a wise thing to reduce the temptation in your life and something that's very common uh, pitfall for people by taking that step. Um, Covenant Eyes, the one I have, it costs money. It's actually not very cheap, but there's some other apps that you can find that are much cheaper, or there's even free versions out there. Make your own decision on that, but uh, I recommend uh, doing something like that. Just don't be like Aiken and think that you can get away with your secret sin because nobody's going to know, and it's happening you know, in his own tent there, and, and nobody's getting hurt. But sin is terrible, even the ones that we seek to justify. So, the other big issue in this passage, another one that, uh, that, 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 that's tough for us to deal with, is um, right here in verse 1. Let me read verse 1 again. It says, But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. How were the Israelites unfaithful? Achan 
son of Carmi, son of Zimri, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Who does it say was unfaithful? Israel was unfaithful. Who did the Lord's anger burn against? The Lord's anger burned against Israel. But who took the things? Only Achan. And this comes up again when God tells Joshua why they lost the battle up at Ai. In verse 10, God says to Joshua, "Um, Stand up, what are you doing down to your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. Thirty-six people died at the battle of, of Ai because of Achan's sin. And then, of course, we see in the story that when the sin is discovered, his whole family is executed for his sin. One man sinned. Many people were considered guilty and punished for his sin. How is it right that God punishes the many for the sins of the one? Does God consider us as individuals and judge us each separately? Or does he consider us as groups of people? Does he judge us as a community and judge the whole community together? Well, of course, our American culture has taught us to think of ourselves primarily as individuals, right? Um, and, and there is support for that idea in the Bible. There, there's, there's teaching in the Bible that talks about the individual responsibility. Um, in Jeremiah's day, uh, there, there was a lot of bad things happening in Israel, and the people of Jeremiah's day had a saying. And uh, so in Jeremiah chapter 31, he, uh, Jeremiah is speaking for the Lord, and he says, In those days people will no longer say, The parents have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Instead, everyone will die for their own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, their own teeth will be set on edge. So they had this saying about, uh, you know, my parents ate the bad food, my parents sinned, and now I'm suffering for it. And, and Jeremiah says that's not the way it's going to be. The way it's going to be is each person will be judged for their own sin, not for the sins of their parents, grandparents, community. Um, and a very similar uh, statement in the book of Deuteronomy, the same idea where uh, in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 24, uh, this is like as God is giving the law, this is how things are to be done in, in His people. It says, parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. So there is clear teaching in the Bible about this individual judgment. However, that verse we read from Jeremiah about the eating grapes and the teeth and stuff was in Jeremiah chapter 31. Here's Jeremiah chapter 32. You show love to thousands, but bring the punishment for parents' sins into the laps of their children after them. 
And then a very similar thing is said in the book of Exodus, where it says in Exodus chapter 34, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. So does the Bible teach individual responsibility uh, for sin or corporate responsibility for sin? Are we liable for the sins committed by our community, or are we only liable for the sins that we ourselves commit? Well, I think that the emphasis in the Bible is on individual judgment, individual sin, and that is the primary thing that each of us will be judged for is the sins that we ourselves commit. But the Bible does also teach that at least sometimes God considers the community guilty for the sins of one or a few of the members of the community. That's clearly what's happening here in the story of Achan. Right? The community is guilty because of the sin of one man. The people didn't even know that Achan had done it. But God considered them all to have broken faith. Does that seem fair to you? Again, this is a case where for many of us, God's justice conflicts with our own sense of right and wrong. But once again, we're left with a choice. Are we going to trust our own judgment about what is right and wrong? Or are we going to take God at His word as the ultimate authority of true morality? It is not an easy thing for us to allow God to correct us in these cases. This is a very challenging uh, story, a very challenging concept in the Bible. Um, this is where we really need to exercise great faith. It's, it's very easy to, to, to trust God when we agree with everything that He says, right? God tells us, uh, you know, something, and we say, oh, yeah, that seems right. No problem. I agree with you, God. I'm all, I'm all on board. What do we do when God says something that challenges what we think? It's hard for us when God has a different view of things than we ourselves have. When we find that the God of the Bible is different than we expect Him to be, do we stick with our idea of who God should be and how He should deal with sin? Or do we acknowledge that He is God and we are not, and His judgment is supreme? And the story of Achan illustrates that God takes sin very seriously. When he gives instructions to his people, he expects obedience. Even when we think that the sin isn't a big deal, we don't get to make that decision. God has the right to determine the magnitude of our sins. And God has the right to choose to see us as a community, and judge entire communities together. 
So in our story today, we saw that God judged the entire people to be guilty for the sin of one man. There is another way that the Bible teaches us about in which that's true on a much larger scale. The Bible teaches us that all people are guilty because of Adam's sin. When Adam disobeyed God's instructions about eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden, we all were held guilty for that. We weren't even born yet. How does that work? God says all people are guilty because of Adam. But Romans chapter 5, where this is most, uh, most thoroughly fleshed out, this whole idea of our guilt on account of Adam, also teaches our righteousness on account of Christ. Because just like uh, God can consider us all guilty on account of Adam's sin, He will consider us righteous on account of Christ's righteousness. Just like the people in, in, in Israel in those days were all counted guilty because of Achan, we can all be considered innocent because of Jesus' innocence. When we put our faith in Jesus, His goodness, His righteousness, His innocence are accounted to us. When we stand the judgment, God will not see our individual sins or the sins of our community. He will see the righteousness of Jesus Christ as the representative head of our community of believers, and we will be declared not guilty on account of Christ's righteousness and His payment for our sins. So even though this story is a story of judgment in the book of Joshua, there is a silver lining to this whole idea of the way that God treats us um, when we sin, which is that just as the sin can be imputed to us, Christ's righteousness can also count on our behalf. So, let us avoid the justification of sin of Achan, and let us put our faith in the righteousness of Christ as our representative head who will be our righteousness and the head of our righteous community. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have provided a way for us to be considered righteous in your sight through the righteousness of your Son, Jesus. And Lord, I pray that we would all trust you and trust your judgment in this, that that, uh, we have been declared guilty and can be declared righteous. Give us the faith to trust in your provision for our sin. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.